Hi there! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Hey, it's episode 42, the number which is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. It's also chapter 19, and I learned an important lesson about revisions. You should do the revisions when it strikes you and your gut feeling that revisions should be done. By which I mean a year ago. Don't wait until after you have recorded it. Because audio editing. Enough said about that. The other day I heard on the radio a comment from someone who shall remain nameless, but he is the mayor of a nearby very large municipality. He was speaking about some policy change or something that has been made. I don't even remember what it was, but it made me laugh because he kept saying that this decision is a win-win. It's a win-win for these people, and it's a win-win for those people, and a win-win for those folks over there. I've heard this before where somebody says, it's a win-win for both sides. And, okay, I need to explain something. It's a win-win means... It is a win for this side, and it is a win for that side. Each group gets only one win. So you don't need to say for both sides. You just need to say it's a win-win. If I say I want cabbage rolls for dinner and Matt says he wants pierogies, (laughs) then we order the platter for two from the Polish restaurant Izba, which includes both pierogies and cabbage rolls. It's a win-win. See what I did there? It's a win for Matt because he gets what he wants and it's a win for me because I get what I want. But we each get only one win. It isn't a win-win for him and a win-win for me. That's just too many wins. So, nameless mare... It's a win for these people and a win for those people and a win for those folks over there. Or I guess you could say it's a (laughs) win-win-win. Kier is about to carry out her plan by paying a visit to Major Gilray. As you will hear, it is a win-win situation. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 19 Why Don't You Trust Me? Ryerson Gilvray had things on his mind. He had been trying since supper to write up a report of the day's events. He'd slogged his way through the departure of troops to the Black Mountains after breakfast, citing details of leaders, captains, and troop numbers. He sighed heavily as he wrote... Correspondence. Reply to Colonel Greenberg regarding status on Inden Lake outpost. No further details necessary. They'd been logged yesterday. That brought him to the arrival of the so-called emissaries from Valraker. Were they for real? Better to be safe than sorry. His responsibilities were the Tree of Life and the Inden Caves, not Kian Barthelin's wife. Nor am I his dying wife, said that woman as she'd left. That woman... A fighter like any other. Hardly. What a beauty. 
Not to be underestimated, though, those green eyes of hers had pierced into his like overbright flames, and he'd been conscious of the fierce threat they posed. Still, no harm in dreaming. He allowed his men short jaunts up to sea view to view the sea, as it were. It kept his men happy, but he couldn't afford such luxuries. When the colonel returned, he'd only have two more weeks before his own long-term leave, and he'd be out of this desolate place and back home to Prost in no time. He ran a finger down the fair cheek of the lady in the framed sketch on his desk. Soon, my love. He picked up his pen. Emissaries arrived to ask about caves, he wrote. A short knock startled him, and Ink ran a spidery trail across the page. He swore. Yes, yes, what is it? he snapped. The door opened. The guard hesitated in the doorway. Uh, sir, you, you have a visitor, sir. What are you rattling on about? I'm busy. I'm expecting no one. But, sir, there's... The door was pushed open further, and in stepped the one person he had hoped but never imagined he'd actually see at his door at night. He practically leapt to his feet, reassembling his face to cover a mixture of suspicion and shock. "'Are you all right, Major Gilvray?' Kier Halliden teased unlaughingly. "'Has it been so long since you've seen a woman that you don't know what to do? "'If you like, I could come back later, say, in about six months' time.' Her words were a light-hearted challenge. She was practically daring him to send her away, and she must be fairly certain of how he would respond. "'No, no, of course, I'd—' He moved out from behind the desk, thankful that he no longer wore his mail coat and tabard— his wife had told him how muscular he looked clad in a simple tunic and breeches. He cleared his throat. <clears> "'Please, come in,' he said, having recovered from the initial reaction. "'Is this a business errand?' She met his gaze levelly and paused significantly before replying, "'Not at all.' This was so unexpected, and yet just as he had been fantasizing all afternoon, that Gilvray was perplexed. The chilly breeze followed Kier through the door like a toddler clinging to his mother's knees. Eldon, bring in the bell, and you may have the rest of the evening off. Eldon looked at Kier in suspicious surprise, as though she had correctly prophesied the end of the world. Told you, she said with a wink. Eldon took the bell down from its hook outside the door and set it on the small table just inside. Try some ginger tea for your stiff back, she advised, and gave him a friendly pat on the shoulder before closing the door behind him. Gilvray stared at her in amazement. Does ginger tea really work for stiff muscles? he asked. I have no idea, was the amused reply as she faced him, but it can't hurt. The major was mildly confused, but made an effort to match her confidence. Please, uh, would you like to hang up your cloak? Or were you just here on a short errand? he added as a protective measure, just in case she wasn't here for the reason he hoped. She did as he suggested. That's up to you. A pulse in his temple thudded against his skull. Oh. He picked up his cup from where it had sat on the table. He drained it. Would you like a drink? That would be splendid, she said quite cheerfully. He fetched another cup from inside the trunk and poured the deep orange liquid into it, refilling his own cup as well. His thoughts raced. Had he slipped up and told her something? Why was she here? No, I didn't tell her anything. She must actually be here to see me. Though he was inclined not to believe it, it seemed the only possible answer. The cold air had been chased out by an uncanny warmth. 
They raised their glasses, and she held his gaze until he felt sweat trickling down his arm. He adopted an air of nonchalance as he took a drink and gestured to the chair near the glowing brazier. Carelessly studying her face, he tried to determine her age. Early twenties? I'm old enough to be her father. He drank and let the liquid slide down his throat and dispel the doubt that she might find him attractive. Well, why not, he thought. I'm twenty years more experienced. Maybe she likes that. He drank again. He moved his desk chair around to join her at the fire and wondered mildly if he should fear her. She would obviously be no match for him physically. He found himself imagining what such a contest would look like and suddenly realized he was staring at her. He set his drink on the desk, aware of the flush on his cheeks. He glanced at her to see if she'd noticed, but her eyes were closed. The woman breathed deeply of the whiskey vapors as if she had had nothing like it in a long while. This is good. I'm glad you like it. I save it for special guests. He felt a bit more confident. Why, thank you. She smiled coyly. She seemed to be enjoying the awkwardness of the situation. He tried to give in to this strangely welcome fantasy, but had to concentrate too hard on not appearing desperate. He didn't want this moment to vanish like a trail of smoke. He leaned back and crossed one leg over the other, still half expecting her to start talking business. So, Major, is that your wife? She gestured to the frame on his desk. He nearly jumped out of his skin. Uh, yes. His voice cracked uncomfortably. He cleared his throat again. Yes, it is. She's lovely, Kier said with sincerity. How long has it been since you've seen her? Her tone was conversational, yet he felt suspicious again. It's been nearly five months. He fingered the ring on his left hand. She nodded sympathetically. It's been nearly that long since I left home. Ah, really, that was good to know. She downed her drink in one gulp. He smiled, followed suit, and poured again. Kier stood up and took a few steps over to the bed, looking around the room. She moved with a grace and fluidity that reminded him more of a dancer than a sword-fighter. This seems comfortable enough. It is. He stood up as well, out of sheer agitation, and searched frantically for a reason to have done so. She was looking at him again with those penetrating eyes. What did they see? His breath came in short puffs. What did you come here for? he asked. Kier didn't take her eyes off him. Come now, you must have some idea. He shook his head, puzzled. I don't have the key, if such a thing exists, he added hastily. So you said. So why are you here? Come now, my dear man. She took a few steps toward him. Her fierce determination reminded him of a panther about to spring. He was almost inclined to retreat. Almost. You said alternate circumstances, remember? You must know what I want, and I know you want it too. Oh, and how would you know that? He was unable to hide the redness that was creeping up his neck. She was right, of course, but he couldn't let her know it. She slowly licked her lips and formed them into a smile. I saw the way you looked at me today. I like that look. Besides, if you thought for a moment that I posed a threat to you, you wouldn't have sent your guard away. The flickering light from the lamp shone on her hair, and the contrasting light and shadow increased the depth of her eyes. Why are you here with me instead of with your traveling companions? He really wanted to know the answer to this. Surely that young captain... But he didn't want to think about that. 
I'm tired of them, she said. I see them every day. And none of them does to me what you do. Now, she lowered her voice to offer one more challenge. Would you prefer to keep this formal, or shall I remove my armor? Gilvray leaned against his desk, afraid for a moment that he might tremble. She was dangerous and beautiful, and he wanted her. Not to appear too greedy about his preference, he mumbled, um, Please, make yourself comfortable. He drained his cup again and turned to place it on the table, glad to shift and hoping to hide the signs of his growing intrigue with these new circumstances. The tension in the cabin was explosive. If someone had opened the door, Gilvray felt as if he might be sucked outside. She began to remove her breastplate. His jaw slackened. She's taking it off. He watched hungrily. Such forthrightness was new to him. His heart pounded with a touch of fear. Soon she stood in front of her host, clad only in tunic and breeches. "'Why are you so nervous, Major?' she licked her lips. "'Nervous,' he said, breathing for the first time in several moments. "'Why would you think I'm nervous?' "'Yes, of course,' she nodded. "'You are the commander of a sizable force. "'You are all that stands between Dregor and the Tree of Life. "'You have to be ready for battle at a moment's notice. "'You're accustomed to facing much more formidable foes than a lone woman.' Her cup was not empty, but she set it on the chair she had vacated. Still, I get the feeling that you don't trust me. She was right again. He didn't trust her. In fact, he found that he was afraid of this, as she had put it, lone woman. Alone or not, she was dangerous, and he didn't know why. Who the hell are you? What difference does it make? She reached up and grabbed the back of his neck and pulled his face down to hers. Her mouth was already open as she attacked his lips, and he instantly lost all desire to resist. He let her tongue enter and welcomed it with his own, the taste of whiskey lingering there. Her other hand kneaded his back, and his arms encircled her, discovering this stranger's body, which was far less delicate than he had assumed it would be. His hands moved up and down, feeling the muscles in her back, her shoulders, her arms. His left hand found her breast and experimented with its firmness. Her left hand found the protuberance in the front of his trousers, and he stifled a gasp. All this time their mouths feasted on each other's lips, faces, necks, ears. "'I wanted you from the first moment I saw you,' he said. "'I know.' She pulled him with her to the floor, and he began to fumble with the string on her tunic. Bodies shining in the meager light, relieved to be released from their confining coverings, their hands pleasured in exploration. She pushed him gently onto his back and sat astride his abdomen. Though her breasts tantalized him, they were not all that drew his attention. He stared up at her battle-scarred torso and gently brushed the healed wounds with his fingertips. Incredible power, he marveled. I had no idea. She put one hand on the floor on each side of his head and leaned down to him, just looking into his eyes. His hands reached up of their own accord and cupped her breasts. Your eyes, he murmured, so captivating. Taking her long braid in one hand, she used the tuft at the end of it to softly trace the outline of his torso, across his chest, back and forth, up and down, from his throat to his navel. Breathlessly, he took her face in both hands and drew it down to his. He kissed her long and hard. She began to kiss her way slowly downward, his lips, his ear, his neck, 
his throat, his chest, his breastbone. Does your wife do this for you? she whispered. His navel. He gasped. No, he said breathlessly, his abdomen, and lower. Her mouth did some more exploring on its own. He pictured his wife's dark curls, her wave and smile as he rode away and missed her. But if there had to be a substitute... She came up again and grabbed his shoulders, pulling him over on top of her. They kissed again and again. "'You certainly know what you want,' he breathed during a pause. "'Yes,' she said, "'and I usually get it, too.' "'I have no doubt,' he sighed as she guided his head down her body. He was more than happy to oblige. She smelled of leather and sweat. Desire rippled through him. "'It is not only her upper body that is muscular,' he discovered. Finally she stopped him, and they rolled over once more. In a moment of utter ecstasy he plunged inward. They both cried out with joy. They took turns at being the leader, both proving and enjoying each other's strength. Gilvray delighted in Guillermo's natural tendency to take charge. He had never experienced such a demanding woman. With aggression that thrilled him, she would pull him toward her, on top of her, away so she could change position, always guiding him to where she wanted him to be. Roughness was intermingled with exquisite moments of soft, slow intimacy. If this woman fought half as intensely as she made love, she was a great warrior indeed. It was her very strength and energy that fueled his own. He could not help but feel that he was the greater of the two. She was powerful, yet he was conquering her. The fire was warm, and they were even warmer. They never did reach the bed. They continued on and on, caressing, stroking hands, mouths, arms, shoulders, thighs. He was intoxicated by her and the alcohol he had consumed. At long last, bodies glistening, they reached a rapturous zenith. They held it for several breaths before collapsing in a heap on the straw mat, so still that someone entering may have wanted to check for signs of life, but he would have found that both hearts were pounding. Gilvray was spent. With the last of his strength, he traced the shape of her face with his index finger, then let his hand drop. Overcome by the exhaustion that accompanies satiated longing, compounded by liquor consumption, he felt himself drift away. The dark curls he usually dreamed of were eclipsed by dark green eyes and a long braid. Kier had finished only half of what she had come for. Well, that's done, she thought as she rose. The pleasure part of the evening was through. For the most part it had been pleasurable, though the man had been a bit desperate and it had taken considerable power of mind over matter to ignore his breath. If anyone were to ask her, she would not have recommended a straw mat trodden on by countless dirty boots as a good surface for love-making. Before doing anything else, she grabbed Gilvray's discarded shirt and gave herself a hasty brush-off. Now time for business. She took a pillow and blanket off of Gilvray's bed and made him a bit more comfortable where he lay dead to the world on the mat by the brazier. She swiftly donned her tunic and trousers and went over to the table where she had seen upon her entrance the belt with the pouch on it lying, waiting for her. She spared one moment to peek again at the framed, pretty, round-faced woman with thick, dark hair. She looked about ten years younger than her husband. Kier's gaze passed grimly over the prostrate form of the worthy major. Sorry, lady, you can have him back now. 
Opening the pouch, she held her breath as she drew out the flat, round stone that held the secret to the last stage of their mission. She lightly fingered the five-colored gems that decorated the outside edge. She studied the intricacy of the swirling, crisscrossing pattern of ancient symbols. Only then was she suddenly horror-stricken. This was the one part of her plan she had not thought out. What am I going to do with it? She couldn't take the stone. Gilvray would notice immediately and know who had it. The army would overtake them in no time, and the six of them would be no match for Gilvray's men. Heart in her mouth, she plunked down onto Gilvray's chair as she felt her mind seize up. Panic and despair welled in her chest. Shit! I should have at least talked to Derry. He would have had some idea. Shit! Dismayed, she sat on the edge of the chair and stared at the intricate, intersecting, curved, straight, curly-cued lines. Gilvray was right about one thing. The runes were breathtaking to behold. That's it. It wasn't Gilvray, but Soren who'd said, breathtaking to behold. That was the meaning of the first line of his message. He wasn't speaking of the key itself, but the runes. He wanted her to focus on the pattern, not the stone. Heart picking up speed, the hairs on Kier's arms spiked as she bent her mind toward the rest of the puzzle. Vision, vision something. Vision alone, and touching only with her eyes. She stared at the pattern. Think! With a hasty glance, she confirmed that Gilvray was still out for the count. What had his companion said? About touch? touch the key to the matching section on the door or something? She tapped her fingers excitedly on the edge of the stone. Touch only with my eyes. What if, what if it wasn't the stone disc that was the key? What if it was only the runes? What if the disc didn't have to come anywhere near the door? It wasn't a conventional key, like for a lock. If the pattern was more like an answer key... Kier allowed herself a few deep breaths to steady her heart. She was certain she was on to something. If the pattern was an answer key, maybe, maybe she didn't need the key at all. I only need the runes. Gilvray moaned and rolled over, his arm flailing, looking for her. Kier was instantly at his side, lay down and stroked his cheek, turning her face into the blanket so its lanolin and coal smell masked his pong. "'Where are you?' he murmured. She fervently hoped he couldn't hear her heart beating. To her ears it could have awakened the dead. "'It was cold,' she slurred, pretending to be half asleep. He shifted his body toward her. "'I'll keep you warm, lover,' he mumbled, and she kissed him, long, slow, and deep, staving off a shudder as he shared the taste of whatever he had eaten for the last few days. She let her hands travel where they naturally would. She turned over and snuggled against him. He spooned around her and caressed her breast. Feeling repulsed, she let him, and he fell into slumber again. Kier thanked Aidan that Gilvray seemed not to notice the topness of her body. She waited nearly forever until he rolled over. With as much stealth as she'd ever used, she slipped back over to her project. Okay, I only need the runes. So what to do, then? She didn't have all the time in the world. How long would it be before Gilray woke up and wanted to move to his bed? She stared at the pattern again, a frown etched deeply into her forehead and mouth. She didn't actually need the stone, 
but there was no way she could hope to sit here and memorize the pattern. Too complicated. Her mind dashed through her options. She could copy it, but onto what? Gilvray would undoubtedly notice if she used some of his parchment, a precious commodity in times of war. She would also run the risk of spilling ink everywhere, making it equally obvious what she had done. She flitted her gaze about the place, thinking rapidly. Then Kier's eyes fell on the penknife that lay on the table among the quills, ink bottle, sand pot, and seal, and was struck with an idea. She hurried over to where her belt had been dumped during their desperate undressing and buckled it on. Untying her smallest leather pouch, she transferred its contents to another one. Moving the lamp closer, she sat down at the table and opened the drawstring fully so the pouch could lay completely flat. She picked up Gilvray's knife and scrutinized the runes once more. The leather drawstring pouch was extremely soft and supple, making it simple to scratch, and the knife was small and sharp, easy to make tiny, accurate markings. Holding her breath, she worked, meticulously carving a replica. So deep was her concentration that she only barely heard the crunching of footsteps approaching. Shit! Horror-stricken at the prospect of discovery, she stuck the stone back in its pouch just as a soft knock came at the door. She whipped her tunic off and snatched up the sheet off the bed, throwing it around her shoulders for effect. She opened the door a crack. Sir, I stopped by to see... The guard looked startled and embarrassed. The Major can't come to the door right now, she said secretively. She peered over at Gilvray, allowing the soldier a brief glimpse. That's, that's fine, he whispered. I only wanted to make sure he was all right. Kier hated herself for the role she was playing, but made the sacrifice for her cause. She let the sheet slip a little. I assure you he's very good indeed. The young guard, propitiated by his overlong peek at her female contours, took a deep breath and said, S "'Sorry to have interrupted you. Good night.' She closed the door and leaned against it, squeezing her eyes shut. "'What was that I thought earlier about enjoying my work?' Clothed again, she finally picked up where she left off. The knife became not only an extension of her hand, but a direct link from her mind as it took in the rune pattern and released it onto the leather. When she thought she was finished, she refused to trust herself and checked her work repeatedly. Two lives depended on her precision. At last, Kier had to conclude that she had done the best she could, and turning the pouch inside out to hide the design, she returned it to her belt. Exhausted, she set the knife back where she had found it and swiftly replaced the stone to its hiding place. She took care to ensure that Gilvray's desk appeared untouched so he would suspect nothing. Only then could she take a deep breath. If Gilvray awoke now, he would see only that she was preparing to leave him. But he did not awaken. When she was back in her armor and had thrown her cloak over her shoulders, she knelt down next to him. Leaning over, she kissed him softly on the mouth one last time. He stirred and opened his eyes drowsily. Thank you, she whispered, for everything. He smiled wearily in response. Goodbye, Major. Bye, Kier. He took her hand and pressed it to his lips before she withdrew it and turned away. His eyes were closed again. She picked up her cup off the chair where she had left it, and looking back over at the man she had conquered, drained it in one mouthful. Then she slipped out the door. Not until she'd said good night to the guard at the south entrance and was well beyond the boundaries of the encampment did she breathe a sigh. 
It was only phase one. She couldn't even stake her life that her interpretation of the riddle was correct, and she still hadn't a clue about the red light. Still, she felt certain she was worthy of self-congratulation. I did it. She grinned and felt light enough to skip like a schoolgirl. The moon was high as Kier walked back to their small camp. She'd been gone for several hours. The wind had died down, though it left a lingering chill and a lonely silence. A figure sat by the fire. The straight, slim form was easily recognizable as that of Derry, and she picked up her pace, anxious to share her success. Maybe it would cheer him out of this funk he'd been in. If they'd come up with a plan, they didn't need it any longer. Hearing her soft footfalls as she neared the area, Derry looked up. His expression was unfamiliar to her, and she slowed her pace. He did not smile, nor did he appear to have been worried about her whereabouts. The others were all asleep, or pretending to be. "'It looks like you had a nice evening,' he said. Kier heard his sarcasm and felt her back stiffen. From across the fire, her excitement rapidly disintegrated, vanishing in the night air like the smoke. "'Why, yes, I did, thank you,' she replied in a tired voice. She went to her saddlebag and dug out a small pouch from which she pulled out a tiny serrated leaf. He shifted his position slightly. We missed you around here. The little voice of reason in her head whispered that she did owe him an apology for that. An explanation, too. Unfortunately, she had never been good at listening to that voice, and she resented his tone. Really? she responded lightly, sticking the leaf in her mouth and chewing. I'd have thought one less voice would speed up the process. Too many cooks and all that. A swallow of water washed down the bitterness, and she nearly spilled out the story of her evening. His frown and the proud straightness of his head told her he was simmering inside. He had something else on his mind. Derry got to his feet. Will you walk with me, please? Without waiting for an answer, he strode past the horses and away from the camp. Setting her teeth, she inhaled and held it. Then she sighed and followed him through the knee-high grasses, picking her way so she didn't stumble. Finally, he descended a low hill and stopped, and when Kier turned around, she could see their fire between the legs of a horse about thirty paces away. She stood a few feet from him and waited. He took a deep breath. Please don't think this is easy. He spoke in his captain voice and stood tall as if about to make a report to Valraker. He had brought her downwind of camp so their voices wouldn't carry. She huddled inside her cloak and braced herself for a tribunal. She could barely make out his form, but she felt his gaze and met it levelly. "'As your captain, it is my duty, however unpleasant it is, to discuss with you when I feel your efforts on the mission are not what they should be. I have observed that you have not been fully open with respect to actions and information that affect the mission.' Heat crept up Kier's skin. What do you mean my efforts are not what they should be? Surely she had been working as hard as any of them, lack of communication notwithstanding. He spoke with quiet intensity, thinking about each word. I am concerned about your apparent selfishness, and I emphasize the word apparent. What? Of all the things he could have said, this was unexpected. My selfishness? More than once in the last week or so, we have had the impression that your own needs have been more pressing than those of the mission. My needs? What needs? 
He spread his arms with a jerky movement that betrayed the ire he struggled to repress. You tell me. You have to admit we've missed you several times on this journey. She glared at him through the darkness, that little voice of reason silenced entirely by fury at his insinuation. She folded her arms and turned to let the breeze brush her hair out of her face. I think you'd better be more specific. His hands slapped his sides as he dropped them, and he let out a frustrated puff of breath. You are making this as difficult for me as you possibly can. She rolled her eyes. Oh, pardon my lack of sympathy while you throw accusations at me, Captain. If it's your duty, just bloody well get on with it. He sucked air in and turned away. You once told me I could be counted on to do what is right. Therefore, I will now do what I feel is right. He turned to her again, and his face was as cold as the half-moon's pale light. You don't talk to anyone anymore. You disappear on your own. You come out with announcements about goblin armies and rune patterns, yet you never say where this information is coming from. What difference does it make if it's true? You're missing the point. No, you are. You're the one standing there telling me I'm selfish and lazy. That isn't what I said. Oh no, you put it much more eloquently, Captain. But the intimation is there. Just because I haven't given you a detailed account of my every movement, you figure I'm not pulling my weight. And wasting our time! Derry had stopped trying to keep his voice down. Here we are, losing three days on a wild romp to an army encampment who cannot or will not help us. Alon Mare is on her deathbed, waiting for us to save her life, and where are you? Off having clandestine conversations with Frederick Hayland, off physically indulging yourself the other day with some doltish boy entirely beneath you. Her jaw dropped. You really believed that's what I was doing? You gave no other explanation. You've never told us a damned thing about what you were doing, ever. Maybe that's because it was none of your damn business. Kier clutched her arms to her chest, denying her instinct to draw a weapon. None of my business why you were an hour and a half late? And that's not all. He fumed, the words tumbling out like an avalanche. I'm talking about you not telling me how you escaped after the earthquake. You holding us up while you steal a sword from a dead body. You not being truthful about what happened with Frederick. You miraculously not getting sick and going off by yourself while the rest of us lay there like dying animals. You're mad! You only ever give us part of the story. And face it, you already have a reputation for disobeying direct orders. She could not speak. This last blow was the lowest of them all. Fury mixed with utter shock prevented her thoughts from formulating into words. The captain took it as an invitation to carry on. Every move we make must be for the good of our cause. Yet the satisfaction of your own desires has, on more than one occasion, preceded the needs of our company. And as a result, you neglect the rest of us who count on your involvement, not least of whom is Alon Mare herself. Her feet planted evenly on the uneven ground, Kier stared at his star-framed silhouette, open-mouthed. Her guts were hollow as if they'd been scooped out. She wasn't sure whether to laugh at him or be outraged. And now tonight you were with some man who has more good looks than good sense. Oh, he definitely has plenty of the former, Kier interrupted between taut lips. Derry truly brought out the worst in her. You insult us, 
Dunvaran, Kean, and especially Alon Mare with your flagrant neglect of our mission. To go off and sleep with him, rewarding the very man who stands in the way of our goal. It's... it's unfathomable. She bit her tongue, clenched and unclenched her teeth. Did the darkness make it easier for him to speak these hateful words to her? She thrust aside an image of sinking her fingertips into his throat. Her voice was frost. It's awfully generous of you to say it was rewarding for him. His body tightened. Dunvaran would be very disappointed to learn that you weren't interested in taking part in our discussion this evening. The blood drained from her face. Kier felt sick. Is that a threat? Derry adjusted his footing. I thought it would be easier for you coming from a friend, but you are just as bloody obdurate as ever. Have you nothing to say? He wanted her to apologize, but she was well beyond that. Derry had practically called her a whore. Countless possible responses swam in her head, but only one thought emerged. So, that's what you think. She nodded slowly. After all this time, that is what you think of me. She took a couple of steps away and could not check the emotion from creeping into her voice. God's blood, Terry. All we've been through, all we've accomplished, and that's the kind of person you think I am? His silence was response enough. She glanced to where Trigg stood and made a decision. She turned and started back to the camp, her pounding footfalls muted in the grass. Derry followed, his acerbic tone refusing to give her the last word. You don't deny that you slept with him tonight. That's all he cares about, a steely voice answered. No, I do not. Kier stopped walking, though I wouldn't quite call it sleeping. Her words were like icicles driving into his heart. She hustled back to camp, vaguely aware of Derry's footsteps behind her. She retrieved her sword from her bed and slung it around her shoulder, adjusting it at her hip with trembling fingers. The rest of the group slept soundly, undisturbed by the argument that Derry had purposely removed from their hearing. Kier wondered if they knew about the captain's feelings, if they shared them. Her eyes stung as she threw her saddle onto Trigg's back and strapped her saddlebags in place. Derry watched her wordlessly. His mouth opened and closed, as if frantically trying to say something, but he couldn't force the words out. Kier fetched her own water-skin from the heap next to the fire and tightened Trigg's straps. She put her left foot in the stirrup and threw her right leg over the horse's back. "'Where—' his voice stuck in his throat. "'Where do you think you're going?' Seated, her fingers quivered with rage, but she fought to untie the pouch from her belt— I don't know, she replied idly, in contrast to the wrath that burned inside her. Maybe I ought to go back and stay with Kami. Like you said, I'll take care of my own needs. What do you think? He squeezed his fists at his sides. Kier, what are you holding back? His face looked as though an arrow was stuck in his back. Why don't you trust me? She shook her head, hurt and disbelief whirled inside it. She managed only a whisper. Because you don't trust me. His face went blank with surprise. Do you know why I killed Ronav? No, obviously you don't. Trigg pranced, anxious to move. Had it just been the villagers and Sasha? 
Had it only been about what he did to me, the flogging, the decision to cut off my thumbs and give me to his henchman as a toy, I'd have been able to arrest him, as you ordered. It was because of you. I saw what he had done to you. So I killed him. She tossed the pouch to him, and his hand snatched it out of the air automatically. Don't say I never did anything for you, my friend. Derry winced at the word. By your own rules, she said softly, I ought to kill you. But I'm not going to because I'd far rather you had a good long time to think about how utterly absurd you've been. She pierced him with a glare and leaned down. Something has seriously botched up your judgment, Derry. What kind of a night lets that happen? Kier gave the bay a gentle kick and rode off. One backward glance showed her she couldn't have chosen more hurtful words. Horror flowed along every line of his face and seeped out through every pore. Oh, yes, she had just as much to say to Dunvarin as Derry had about her. Derry stood and stared after her into the endless darkness that stretched out before him. How much time had passed since she'd gone out of sight, he could not guess. His entire body vibrated with fury, outside and in. He wanted to scream. He wanted to throw himself on the ground or kick everything in sight. Hateful words came to his lips, all descriptors for the detestable, manipulative, spoiled girl who had just flown off. But he said nothing. He did nothing. He just stood, toes twitching inside his boots, and watched the thin clouds that scuttled across the sky. Confusion numbed his mind. The conversation had not gone according to plan at all. Kier was the one who was guilty of wrongdoing, wasn't she? And he had been right to bring it to her attention, hadn't he? How was it that he now felt as if his accusations had been unjustified? How dare she turn this around on me? Again? Horrible insults she'd thrown at him when all he'd done was his job. And to add insult to injury, she'd tossed him her empty pouch— the symbolism enraged him. You are worth nothing to me, that's what she was saying, after all they'd been through. He turned and held Kier's final gift to him over the fire. Shit, Duskellen believed Kier had cursed Alon. And now she was gone. Her work here is done. Somehow Duskellen's idea no longer sounded so ludicrous. End of Book 2, Part 1. Now, after all that extra editing of this chapter, I'm going to take a break. By which I mean I need a snack. I will be back next week to let you know where Kier goes and what Derry and company do given these new circumstances. Is the mission in jeopardy? Will Frederick show his face again? How about the Guardian? See, I'm not interested in receiving nasty emails from people who are cross with me for holding back and making them wait to find out, so have no fear. For audiobook lovers, though, what this means is I will be launching the first half of the book, Gatekeeper's Deception, Deceiver, on March 1st. It may take a few days for it to actually appear on retailer platforms, but keep your eyes peeled. Also coming soon is my second audio short, which will be The Inner Light, which was first published in Pulp Literature magazine, issue number six, from spring 2015. So much going on! And now, thank you to my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Are they a win-win-win-win? 
thanks to David and Sharon. For them, it would be a win-win. Cheers to the original six and their win-win-win-win-win-win. And a hearty thank you to you, dear listeners. So many wins altogether, but only one each. You see? Now, go be fantastic. <laughs>